take your seat. Come on in. Come on in. As most of you know, different ones within the church over periods of months and years have struggled with COVID, as has uh, this dear sister who is standing next to me. Uh, she actually has it more recently, but God has, in His grace, saved her, and we're grateful for that. And she wanted to be able to share a brief testimony. Good morning. God bless you. You don't know how much love I received while I was sick. Some days I didn't know anything, didn't know anything. I understand I almost died. I had no idea what was going on with my body or what was going on with me. But you people, I just praise you for everything because I could have died, and I didn't want to. I wasn't ready. But I had wonderful people. I could not believe when I did get home all the food that was in my refrigerator. As a matter of fact, we finally almost got it empty. But the gifts and the love and mostly the prayers, people from all over, even out of town, have been praying for Frank and I. And my husband, I have to tell you, he was wonderful. <laughs> a man had to do some things that men don't like to do. But he was there. And then I needed him. He was there. And then I had beautiful people. Uh, Sharon Weber came, and I was going through a really bad time, and she was wonderful. You know, she's a nurse, and she just blessed me. She got me a little fur kitten. I don't have any animals. And the little fur kitten, I named her Misty. And she's with me all the time at home. I sleep with her. No, I don't sleep with her. She's with me when I take my nap. But anyway, um, I have been very weak. Um, I have to have the oxygen because they haven't released me yet because I had pneumonia. But don't, you're okay to get near me. I don't have anything for you to get. It's something <coughs> I have to heal inside my heart and in my lungs and can't completely breathe right, so I have to have this thing on. I don't like it. I have one at home that drags me all around. I drag it around, but anyway, um, I mean, words cannot say thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Amen. And uh, my pastor has been right beside me in automatically. He calls me. He would call every day, and there was other people. Cindy Brown, she came and had been at my house for a while. I mean, there was a lot of people, uh, the cards, I couldn't put them all on the wall, there's so many cards, and just your love, I mean, this church, I've been, we've been here going on 31 years, and this church is our church, we own this church, we've been paying, and so, our tithes, so we own this church, Whoa. <laughs> so don't forget that, that we have a part in this church. Okay. So anyway, yeah, he said that's enough. But I love every one of you. Thank you for your gifts. I don't know if I'll get a thank you card out to everybody, but would you like to say something, Mr. Frazier? No, he's not going to. God bless you. Thank you. Amen. I called her early on, and uh, Frank answered. She wasn't up to talking, and I said, well, tell him that her pastor is calling this short, under four-foot lady. Oh, no, she's not under four-foot, is she? Um, but we missed her. We're grateful God has preserved her life, as he has for so many of you here in this room. We're grateful. Um, how many of you remember the children's game that was out for a while called Where on Earth is Carmen San Diego? Remember that? Or how many of you remember the books, Where's Waldo? 
Remember those? Um, the direction I want to go today, in fact, the title of my sermon is Where on Earth Does God Live? Where on Earth Does God Live? So, for me, uh, and I've said this to a few of you, uh, I purposed that from about the middle of the year to now, the end of the year, I would focus in on one theme in every message that I preached, and that was on the grace of God. And I have said to people over and over again, I don't know how it's being received, because I can't always tell by your faces. Sometimes you guys look like you're sleeping. Maybe sometimes you are. Uh, sometimes you look interested. Sometimes you don't. But i got to tell you, the truth is I'm preaching this for me way more than you, because I desperately need to be reminded again and again of the truth of the power of the grace of God. So I'm going to ask if you would, just take a moment, and I know that many of you resist any suggestion like this, but just take a moment and close your eyes if you would. Just close your eyes. Take this time and focus on God. I mean, turn your hearts toward God. And say that, say, God, I'm looking towards you. I'm focusing on you right now. And feel the presence of God come near to you. He who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's turned his heart toward you. Now, just quietly to yourself, say the word grace. Just whisper it to yourself. Just say grace. Do it again. And let his grace wash over your soul. Grace. Grace. God's infinite grace. Doesn't it bring a smile to your soul that God's grace is here for you right this very moment? Even as April said, whether you're on mountaintops or you're in valleys low, God's grace comes running after you. Surely, goodness and mercy will dog your steps all the days of your life. That's God's promise. Thank you. Um, my message this morning is a really simple message. It's a reminder, and it only has one point. But in order to get there, I kind of have to take you on a journey um, have any of you ever been or have you ever experienced having been someplace many times but then it was your turn to drive and you didn't know how to get there? Because every other previous time you were a passenger and you didn't care. You might have even dozed off in the car. But now you have to go there. Well, today I want to take you on a journey and I'm asking you to be a passenger but a passenger who pays enough attention that you can go there yourself when you need to. Um, I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 8, if you have your Bibles with you. If not, they will be up on the screens here for those of you that would prefer. Where on earth does God live? 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 12. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 12. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David my father. 
But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Now, Solomon in the scripture I've just read makes it clear that the earth and even the heaven of heavens isn't big enough to contain the presence of God. And yet, God has chosen to manifest Himself in various ways, at various times, in various places. The truth is, God has chosen at times to manifest His presence right here in this room. What I want to look at today are what are the four primary dwelling places of God in the earth? And I want to give them to you. The four dwelling places of God. So if you're taking notes, you can not, kind of note these down. The four dwelling places of God. And then I'm going to look at each one. Number one is His primary house. Number two, His pattern house. Number three, His perfect house. And number four, His permanent house. Now, these are the four dwelling places of God I want us to look at today. And as we jump into this, there's an important principle that you need to get. And you can write this principle down right below these four dwelling places of God. And the principle is simply this. God will not live in a dirty house. So what's the solution? Here's the solution as I have seen it in the Word of God. Any sin or impurity, or imperfection is erased by the glory of God. I want you to think about that in terms of your life. Any sin, any impurity, any imperfection is eradicated by the glory of God's presence. Now, I heard a story once of some guys who were in college in a fraternity and uh, they went against a neighboring team whose mascot was the goat. And the goat was running around the field and these guys got the bright idea of capturing the goat and taking it home to their town. They got it home to their town and all of a sudden realized, what do we do with this goat now? So they talked among themselves for a while. And finally, one of the college guys said, I'll let him room with me in my dorm. And one of the other guys looked at him and said, are you crazy? What about the smell? And this guy thought about it for a minute. He says, I think it's all okay. I think the goat will get used to the smell after a while. God won't dwell in a dirty house. Maybe you don't care if your house smells but God does. So let's look at these four dwelling places of God, one right after another, just move through them. Number one, his primary house. Genesis 2.7 And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That phrase Breath of life is actually one word in the Hebrew. It's the word neshama. And it literally means spirit of life or more closely, spirit of God. God's first dwelling place on the earth was inside of Adam. 
Adam was his dwelling place, and Adam was a three-room dwelling place. Adam had a spirit, a soul, and a body. With his body, he engaged the outside world. With his soul, he engaged his thoughts and his feelings. But with his spirit, he engaged the presence of God. That's why Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when my body is happy, then I'm healthy. When my soul is happy, then I'm emotionally stable. But when my spirit is happy, then I'm whole. I'm holy. Something is going on inside. So God says, I want your spirit, soul, and body to actually prosper, to be preserved for that final day. So we started off with the recognition that Adam is a house that was designed by God. But ultimately, Adam's house became desecrated. Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the field. It was a house designed by and for God. But because of sin, it became a house that was desecrated until ultimately it became a house desolated. The word desolated means empty or void. And God removed his presence to the extent that God set angels at the door of the garden, the place where he had been dwelling, where he had chosen to manifest his presence. He said angels there to keep them away from his presence. A house designed, a house desecrated, a house desolated until finally it became a house destroyed. The scripture says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam ate of it. And my question is, did Adam die that day? Yes and no. In fact, the scripture is pretty clear. Immediately something began to die in his spirit. His soul began to experience some form of death because he was no longer able to have that kind of healthy emotional interaction that he was intended with God as creator. But ultimately, his body too died. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Why? Because he's no longer alive to God. That's why Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So that was God's primary house. But the second house that we talked about was his pattern house. The pattern house is represented by 1 
the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then ultimately by the temple that was at Jerusalem. And God told His people this in Exodus 26.30. You shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern which you were shown on the mountain. So this house was built to a pattern. It was designed, even as Adam's house was, by God Himself. And this house also had three rooms. It had an outer court, which was the place where activity occurred, where you interacted with the people around you. But it also had an inner court where you actually began to interact a little bit more with the things and the purposes of God. And then finally, it had a third room. That was called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies where you interacted directly with God Himself. Each one of these corresponds with those rooms that are inside of us. Body, soul, and spirit. And God first told Moses with the tabernacle and ultimately David with the temple, getting ready to turn it over to his son Solomon, that this was to be God's dwelling place. But everything had to be built according to the pattern. Just as with Adam, it was a house designed. But it also became a house desecrated. Matthew 21, 13. Jesus said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. God designed it. They desecrated it. And then it ultimately became a house desolated. Matthew 23, 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. See, originally it was God's house, but in time, God says it became your house until it became an empty house. I think about my dad's house. My dad spent all of my years growing up, except for about four, maybe five, all of my years growing up, dad spent working on his house. And within just a few years after my dad passed away, my mom had moved away, that house actually began to crumble until my brother-in-law and I went back to visit the house. We couldn't even walk up or down the stairs because it was too dangerous. It had been left desolate with no life. That's the picture I think of when I think about what God says about this kind of process that happens for all of us. Designed, desecrated, desolated, until ultimately it was destroyed. Luke 21, 5 and 6. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, Jesus said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And in 70 AD, that's exactly what happened. Nero, in the person of Rome, came into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, taking all the stones and demolishing them. So even this house was ultimately destroyed. So we started with God's primary house with Adam, then God's patterned house with the temple and the tabernacle, now God's perfect house. John chapter 2 and verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? but he was speaking of the temple of his body. 
Colossians 2, 9 and 10, Paul says this, For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Jesus Christ was the perfect house designed by God. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The Spirit will overshadow you, and you will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. Everything that we have just celebrated hones in on the fact that Jesus Christ was designed as the perfect house by God himself. Perfect in his body, perfect in his emotions, and perfect in his spirit towards God. But even his house ultimately became desecrated. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. A house designed by God, but desecrated by you, by your sin, and by mine. <clears throat> Ultimately, this desecrated house became desolated, abandoned of the presence of God. Jesus on the cross cried out, Lama, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A house designed, desecrated, desolated, and ultimately destroyed as he hung upon a cross and breathed his last. And contrary to some rumors that are out there, by the way, Jesus died, died. He was dead in every way, all because of what we had done. But the scripture says he did it for the joy set before him. And you are that joy. I am that joy that was set before God such that he would give his life. So God's primary house was Adam. His pattern house was the tabernacle and the temple. His perfect house was Jesus. But he has another house, and I've called it his permanent house. If you want to see his permanent house, just look around you right now. Look at the people seated, seated right around you. That's God's permanent house. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul says this, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Jesus said, I'll pray to the Father. And he will give you a helper. And he will dwell in you. The helper is the spirit of God. He dwells inside of you. In every other instance, God was present in a specific time, in a specific place, and then it ended. But because he dwells in you, he says he will dwell in you forever. His permanent dwelling place. Paul says in Colossians 1.27, to them, God, made, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then just one chapter later in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so what he's telling us is that Christ himself bore all of the Godhead. Everything that was God was inside of Christ. And then he tells us, Christ dwells in you. So in you dwells all the fullness of God. 
you are God's permanent dwelling place. Now, we have these two, two statements. One I started with. God will not dwell in a dirty house. But then, the statement I just gave you is, I am God's permanent dwelling place on the earth. How do those two things go together? Well, the only logical conclusion that you can draw from the word of God itself is this. Since God dwells in me, and God can't dwell in dirty houses, I must then not be dirty because of what God has done in me. I might have dirty thoughts, but I'm not dirty. I might do a dirty deed, but I'm not dirty because God dwells in me. And His glory eradicates all evil. That's what God does in us. What this means, by the way, is that grace has changed your very DNA. You're no longer merely human. You're a Christian who bears the presence of the living God. You're different than anyone else who had lived previous to Christ and the cross. You bear His presence. And you might be tempted to say, well, that sounds too good to be true. That's because it is. But that's the nature of grace. It's always too good. It's beyond what we can imagine. Isaiah says this in chapter 1, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. So here's God talking to you. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And then the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 says this, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now it's possible that you lay in your bed at night and you're consumed with thoughts about stuff. But I want you to hear this. God isn't. God doesn't dwell upon that kind of stuff. He dwells upon what He has put in you, which is His presence. Grace has made your cleanness a done deal forever. Being clean or righteous isn't an activity. It's a state of being for you. For most of my life, I lived with this cloud of impending doom overnight. How many of you guys remember the cartoons where this guy would walk along and he had a cloud over his head? That was me for most of my life. I knew that one day God would realize he made a mystique mistake when he chose me. That somehow I squeaked past all of the guards at the gate and he would find me and then he would cast me out. And then one day I realized no one squeaks into heaven. You can't just get, get by. You can't somehow sneak in. You're either ushered in in victory or you're not in. You're either in God or you're not in God. That's the nature of what grace is all about. Um, you know how sometimes parents, and, and if you're one of these, I ask you to please hear me. Sometimes parents look at their little one, especially the youngest. Maybe there's a good age difference between the youngest and the next one in line. And they look at the youngest and you say, oh, you're our little surprise. Yeah, we didn't plan on you at all. That's their way of kind of trying to be cute about it. But the truth is, I want you to hear this. There's no surprise in God's kingdom. God already knew 
that he would give you that child. And God knew you when he brought you into his family. You're not a surprise to God. He planned for you. He planned for your presence. He planned for your nearness. You were dead and you couldn't do anything about it. But he brought you to life. You were broken. And all of the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put you back together again. But he did it. You were lost and you couldn't find your way. But he brought you home. In fact, one of the statements that I love that I can remember the first time I heard it. I was at a meeting in which a a wonderful teacher of the gospel was preaching and teaching. His name was Bob Mumford. And I can remember Bob Mumford standing in front of all of us folks at Elam and saying, this moment, this very moment, you are as holy as Jesus is holy. And in my mind at that time, I'm thinking, I I was a young guy, I was 21, 22. There is no way in the world that can be true, because I know me. But the longer I live, the more I realize it's 100% true. This moment, you are as holy as Jesus is holy. Now, does that truth make you want to run out and sin like crazy? Because after all, Pastor Chris just told you that you're clean no matter what you do. No, if you actually realize the truth of what grace has done for you, sin is the farthest thing from your thoughts. In fact, there's nothing in you that wants that. You want to live as clean as he is inside of you. Grace means that you're not dirty because Jesus dwells in you and he never lives in a dirty house. Grace is the active working of the Holy Spirit His spirit dwelling in you. He says, I will ask the Father, and the Father will send a helper, who is the Holy Spirit, to dwell in you forever. That's the promise of grace. Maybe today you say, yeah, I already know all that, Pastor. I know that. That's not a big deal. But there will be moments when you're lower, when you're no longer on the mountaintop. There will be moments when you will face challenges and you will begin to wonder. And that's when all the stuff that you have espoused with your lips through the years, kind of gets boiled down until you come to the essentials of what you really know. And in that moment, you need to know the grace of God. His grace towards you. Would you bow your heads with me? The one thing I want you to learn today and I want you to carry this with you forever, is that God said he would not dwell in a dirty house, but he dwells in you. God dwells in you. And that truth doesn't cause you to take your liberties, no. It causes you to hold with such joy the reality that he comes inside of you and changes who you are. I've grown up with some of you over these 30 years. And you're not who you used to be because God has changed you from the inside. In fact, maybe I could word that better. You are who you were intended to be, who God made you to be. And he's changing you from glory to glory. Although this message ends my series on grace, it doesn't end the working of his grace in your life. Father, I pray 
Lord, I sincerely pray that you would make grace abounding, abundant, overflowing grace the watchword of our lives and that we would begin to live joyfully in that grace to us and then that can be given to others. May we be a people of grace. A people who received grace and give grace. Lord, let it be beyond Christmas season when we're all full of joy and anticipation and happiness because of the holidays. Let it truly be because Christ dwells in us all year long. Let Christmas go beyond December 25th for us. Lord, that's our cry today, that we would know grace, abundant grace. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Let me remind you of one thing. Out in the foyer are a couple of tables, and on those tables are some cards. Would you please check to see if you have left your cards there? And maybe you even picked them up last week. Uh, there might have been more put on there because I saw people putting some out today. So would you please check so that we don't have to figure out what to do with them? Thank you so much. God bless you.